Today I have with me Rob Hoyles and Daniel Covington to discuss the early appropriate guilty plea reform, which is one of the four parts of the latest criminal justice reforms. Rob Hoyles, you are the project lead in the implementation team for the new reforms, and Daniel Covington, you are the project officer? Yes. Yes, Mel. <laughs> so, the criminal justice reform cognate bills were introduced into the New South Wales Parliament on the 11th of October this year and were subsequently passed on the 18th of October. That's correct, Mel. The package, as it's referred to, um, has four parts. Yes, that's right. These include the early appropriate guilty plea reform, a new sentencing framework, changes to parole and changes to the high-risk offender scheme. And these reforms have been passed by Parliament but are yet to take effect? That's correct. The commencement date for the early appropriate guilty plea reform is the 30th of April. Uh, the sentencing framework will commence in late May 2018. Uh, the high-risk offender legislation is due to commence on the 6th of December, so that one commences a bit earlier than the others. So today uh, we are focusing our discussion on the Justice Legislation Amendment Committals and Guilty Pleas Bill 2017. Uh, firstly, Rob, why is this reform commonly referred to as the early appropriate guilty plea reform? Well, I guess it's because this new piece of legislation is largely framed around trying to encourage matters that will result in a guilty plea to be finalised earlier than they currently are, um, rather than really at the very last stage of the matter. Um, we know from statistics that about 83% of all matters end in a guilty plea of some form, but 35% of all pleas come late in the piece after matters are committed for trial. So the Law Reform Commission in 2014 um, wrote a report that said that that results in about 915 matters a year that are settled after the matter is committed for trial. And two-thirds of all of those guilty pleas actually come on the first day of trial or later. Um, and almost two-thirds of them are not to the original charge that was charged. So what we do know is that there is a lot of negotiation that occurs very late in the piece, and it may be that some structural changes to the system can assist in settling those matters earlier so that our clients that are not guilty and want to take their matter to trial will get a trial date earlier than they currently get. Right, so this new legislation um, effectively will clear out some of the backlog of matters in the higher courts? Well, that is, that is the hope. Um, at the moment, it's taking significant periods of time to get both trial and sentencing dates in the district court. The reality is that a lot of matters are listed for trial, which ultimately become sentences at the last minute. Uh, the hopes with this reform is that the matters that can be negotiated and that pleas of guilty are to be entered, they can be identified earlier at the local court, uh, as opposed to on or close to the first day of trial, and that should have an impact on the delays in getting trial dates because realistically matters that are listed for trial should be the matters that are going to trial where there's little scope for negotiation. Right, so speaking more specifically, the legislation makes some significant changes uh, to the Criminal Procedure Act and most significantly the uh, amendment 
um, including the abolition of the committal process as we currently know it, um, which is the judicial review of the evidence by a magistrate. How will matters now be committed from the local or children's courts to the district or Supreme Courts? Well, even though there is a change to the process, um, it's still proposed to call that process a committal. And that process will be overseen by a magistrate who will manage, I guess, the, the, the procedure for the, the matter proceeding from the local court to the district court. Um, the procedure is still that the police will be required to serve a brief of evidence and meet with the same disclosure requirements that they currently have um, to provide a brief of evidence. And that then the DPP will come into the matter and will certify that the charges that have been laid by the police are in fact the correct charge or that indeed they aren't and there are other charges that should be laid as the correct charge. Um, those new proceedings also have a formal mandatory case conferencing procedure that ensures um, that both parties consider properly whether there is any scope to negotiate the matter and to ensure that where there is an appropriate early guilty plea to be entered that it is considered in the local court, not on the day of trial. Okay, so let's break that down and start with the service of the brief of evidence. How will service of the brief be different under the new legislation to the current requirements for service of the brief? There is obviously going to be still a requirement for the prosecution to disclose certain evidence. Section 61 indicates that the prosecutor must, after the <coughs> commencement of committal proceedings, on or before the day specified by the magistrate, they must serve a brief of evidence. So that still remains. Um, there is a requirement under Section 62 that certain matters be disclosed in the brief of evidence. And Section 62.1a indicates that the brief of evidence must contain the following things. Copies of all material obtained by the prosecutor, prosecution that forms the basis of the prosecution's case. B. Copies of any other material obtained by the prosecution that is reasonably capable of being relevant to the case for the accused person and C, copies of any other material obtained by the prosecution that would affect the strength of the prosecution's case. Section, section 63 then goes further, that essentially goes through the prosecution's ongoing disclosure. So there still is an ongoing disclosure obligation and that is entrenched in the legislation. How soon after the first mention is the brief required to be served? Well, we don't have a settled answer for that just yet because it will depend on the practice note that's released by the Chief Magistrate's Office. Um, but we're not expecting it to be too different to what we currently see in local court proceedings. Um, an adjournment of somewhere between six or eight weeks we would think would be standard, but ultimately that is up to the Chief Magistrate. Okay, and what form will the evidence be served in? And is this going to be called a, a mini brief or a full brief or something in between? Well, we expect the brief to comply with section 62 that Daniel's already laid out, which means that we expect that brief service will be comprehensive and will address all of those matters that are reasonably capable of being relevant. Um, the only thing that might change is that the legislation allows the form to be different. And that's designed to be a time saving. At the moment, in a lot of matters, we wait a very long period of time for certain types of technical evidence to be put in a particular form for use in court. Um, and I guess what is being queried by this reform is whether that time is well spent. Um, where in some matters some technical piece of evidence might not necessarily rely on 
all of the technical details of how it came about at an early stage, that evidence could be served much more quickly if you could allow a short form statement or something to be supplied earlier. Nothing changes the obligation on the prosecutor to actually provide the full statement and all of the evidence um, in the longer term if the matter is in fact going to go to trial or if there's a contest with the evidence and there are provisions to allow the defence to be able to ask the prosecution to requisition certain types of evidence if that becomes necessary. Um, in terms of how that actually works, there's a protocol being developed between the police and the DPP um, which will determine what types of evidence the police can serve in that non-admissible form. We haven't seen a copy of that protocol yet um, and we're expecting it sometime around December and that will give us a lot more context around um, how it is that brief service will work. Okay, so this takes us to the next step, charge certification. So we're in the local court or the children's court charged with an indictable offence or a serious children's indictable offence. We've been served with a brief of evidence and then what happens next? Well, what happens next is the, a new process which is called charge certification. So as it occurs now, the police charge and accuse with an offence and the brief of evidence is served. What would occur under the current regime would be that the matter is then committed for sentence or trial. For example, it may be committed for trial and at a later stage a Crown may look at it and lay a, a different charge. But there is no formal certification process other than the when the when they find a bill in the district court, um, anything that occurs of that nature in the local court. The new legislation will allow a process that, that is called charge certification. And what that means is that the DPP will be given a copy of the brief from the police, as will we. They will look at that brief of evidence and they will determine and certify that the evidence available, and this is contained in section 66.2 of the legislation A, that the evidence available to the prosecutor is capable of establishing each element of the offences that are being, that are to be subject of the proceedings against the accused person. So they are going to be signing that document to say that we think that this charge um, is one that um, satisfies the elements of the offences. And if they receive the brief, for example, and they form the view that the evidence isn't capable of satisfying these elements, then they will either requisition further material from the police <coughs> or they could form the view that they will not certify the same charge that the police had initially laid. So that is that they may certify a lesser charge um, and the matter could be disposed summarily or it could be a different charge that would go to a, a higher court. So essentially it puts it back to the DPP to, to certify that they um, think a certain charge is appropriate. The other thing is under this new system that they will be, and they are funded to have uh, more senior people look at these matters at an earlier stage and the hope will be that these senior people will review these charges earlier and determine if they're appropriate in the local court as opposed to the higher court under the current system. All right, and how long after the matter is in court for the first mention does the charge need to be certified? Well, the legislation states at section 67 2B 
um, that they have up to six months to certify a charge. Um, and there is a discretion, um, if it's in the interest to do so, to extend that period of time. And we would imagine that would occur in complex matters such as complex fraud, terrorism, murder type charges where there may be a need to delay it further. Um, but in short, they have around the six month period, as Rob's already indicated, we're yet to see the practice note from the Chief Magistrate that will specify the time frames, um, but the legislation requires the certification to occur within six months. Okay. And you've mentioned that um, at, the, at this point in the proceedings, the DPP have engaged a senior practitioner. Uh, will we, as in Defence and specifically Legal Aid, be doing the same? Absolutely. We are, we are funded to put more senior people, that is counsel, in, in a lot more matters. So, for example, if a Crown Prosecutor is briefed in a matter, um, we think it will be appropriate um, and would be unfair if we didn't match that with counsel in a matter. So we will, we will match what the Crown put in. And also, if there are matters that are complex from our perspective, that is that it's a, a difficult defence, a difficult client, um, or certain types of charges that are more serious, we will also look at involving counsel um, in matters at a lot higher rate. Right. Okay, so we've now, we've got the brief of evidence. <coughs> we know what the charges are. The charges have been certified. What happens next? Well, the legislation requires that a mandatory criminal case conference be undertaken. And we've had some experience with case conferences before. Um, the overwhelming desire in this scheme is for those senior prosecutors and senior defence lawyers to meet and to be able to discuss the matter itself. Um, obviously, um, it's expected that where possible, um, the defendant is able to either attend the case conference or where they're in custody that they will be able to attend via AVL, at least to the extent that the defence lawyer will be able to get instructions from the client as to any proposals that are put. Um, and it's also expected that the prosecutors will have already consulted with any complainant or key witnesses or any stakeholders at their end, including where there's already an offer on the table by the defence, someone with the delegation to be able to accept that offer, so that the case conference is a really meaningful exploration of whether there is any middle ground that would allow the matter to settle, or whether you know the, the charges that are proposed should be accepted, or where the matter is running to trial, whether there is some real value in trying to narrow the issues for trial. Um, as I said, it is expected that the senior prosecutor who certifies the charge and any counsel, if the counsel is put in the matter from legal aid's perspective, um, attend that case conference. And we also expect um, our advocates to be involved in case conferencing and continue to play a significant role, as will our solicitors. All right, and speaking timeframes again, and I, I assume this is going to be met with the same response with respect to a um, practice note, um, is there anything in the legislation to specify a timeframe within which the case conference needs to be held? You read our mind, Mel, waiting for the practice note mm -hmm. um, in relation to that. Um, and so, again, we're waiting to see what the Chief Magistrate tells us. But the expectation is that the Chief Magistrate will have a practice note that says it will be adjourned for several weeks to allow a case conference to occur 
and it will be the expectation of the parties that they arrange a case conference within that period of time. After the case conference, both parties have had their discussions about the charges. Um, what happens after that? Well, I guess it depends what happens at the case conference. If it is the case that um, the parties agree on what a certain charge should be moving forward, say if there's an agreement by the defendant to plead guilty to a backup charge, what will happen is that there will be a case conferencing certificate that sets out the negotiations that occurred and the agreement for the defendant to plead guilty to that substitute charge and the agreement of the Crown to accept that offer in full satisfaction. And that case conferencing certificate um, reflects what happened at the case conference and is tendered to the court. And it's a very important document under the new scheme because it um, locks in the discount that the accused gets for the utilitarian value of their plea of guilty on sentence. So they will get a 25% discount if they make an offer in the local court that is accepted, so long as that offer is recorded on the case conferencing certificate. And even if that offer is accepted later on down the track, um, if it's made in the local court, they will retain that 25% discount on sentence. So it's very important that that case conferencing certificate records that offer that's made. Um, even if the offer's not accepted, it would still need to be recorded so that they can get their discount later. If no agreement is reached, well, the case conference certificate will simply indicate which charges are going to proceed um, for the purpose of the trial. Um, and ultimately, where they go from there depends. Even if you're in a situation where further negotiations may be necessary, um, there is scope for a second or subsequent case conference to be held, so the parties can go away, think further, and come back for a subsequent case conference. Also, the provisions um, that currently fall within sections 91 and 93 of the Criminal Procedure Act about calling a witness on committal are still retained under the new scheme in sections 82 and 84, but Daniel's going to talk about that, so I won't go into it too much. How long after the case conference does the case conference certificate have to be filed? Well, um, the magistrate will make an order as to when the parties are to return following the case conference. And it's expected that the case conferencing certificate is filed in court either before that day or on that day. Um, that's obviously assuming that the, a case conference is held. If for any reason one isn't held, um, well, then that decision gets deferred. But I anticipate you might be asking me about that in a second. <laughs> yes, you read my mind. What happens if the parties fail to meet their obligations uh, of the case conference? Well, Section 76 of the Act talks about failing to complete case conference obligations. And pretty much what it says is that the magistrate does have the power to um, discharge the accused person or to adjourn the proceedings. But in reality, I think it depends on the reason that a case conference certificate didn't take place. If it's because the complete unreasonable failure of the defendant's legal representative or the defendant to participate, it's likely that the matter will just be committed for trial. Um, if it's because ultimately the case conference fell through because of the unavailability of a party, or because, for example, a defendant who's to appear via AVL has their AVL cancelled, um, we anticipate that what would probably happen is a request for an adjournment to allow for a further case conference. Case conferencing becomes such an important part of this scheme for the defendant because if the defendant doesn't really consider what's on the table and commits the matter without making an offer, it may be that they ultimately lose a 25% discount. And so we're very motivated to ensure that case conferences occur and that offers are properly considered. All right, so in a circumstance where you've 
reviewed the brief of evidence and considered the charges. You've had your case conference and your client's given you instructions to plead not guilty and the case conference certificate is filed in accordance with those instructions. Then your client changes their mind and now wants to plead guilty. What happens then? Well, ultimately, a client can choose to plead guilty at any time, as is currently the law. And Section 77 allows you to make further offers even at a time after the case conference occurs. So you can amend a case conferencing certificate, you can develop on an idea that was commenced in a case conference or something that was raised but wasn't properly ventilated. Um, and any plea that occurs um, after it is that you hold a case conference but before the matter is committed can simply be attached to the case conference certificate and treated like it was an offer that was raised at case conference. Obviously, after the matter's committed, well, it's, a, it's a, still the same story. You can still plead guilty, um, but it may be that if no offer is made, you end up losing your discount. Okay. And the discussions that take place in the case conference, um, can they be used against the accused at a later date? For example, if the accused decides to make an application to reverse their plea of guilty? So... It's very clear in section 78 of the legislation that case conferencing material is not admissible in any proceedings before a court, tribunal or body. There are a few carve-outs in the legislation um, that allow them in, and one obvious one is sentencing, where what happens at case conferencing is pivotal. Um, another is in appeal proceedings, where it, it is feasible to think that what happens at a case conference might be relevant to an issue raised on appeal. Um, and that's both in relation to appeals under the Criminal Appeal Act and the Crimes Appeal and Review Act, um, as well as it is potentially possible for case conferencing material to be used um, in relation to someone trying to traverse a plea and reverse a plea to not guilty, um, as well as in proceedings um, in relation to lawyers' misconduct where it's potentially in a client's interest to be able to rely on some deficiency raised by a lawyer at case conference. Um, but in almost every other circumstance, and in most circumstances concerning an accused person, um, the material can't be used against the accused in another, another case or another example. So an admission made in a case conferencing certificate, for example, um, can't be used as an admission of guilt against that client if the matter proceeds to trial. Okay. Um, now, we've touched on this before. But the new legislation, uh, does this allow the defence the opportunity uh, in the similar ways to section 91 and 93 currently do to cross-examine witnesses prior to committal? Absolutely. The, um, the power is retained in section 82, 83 and 84. Section 82 deals with the magistrate directing witnesses to attend and the test is as it is uh, currently, the, the magistrate may give a direction only if they're satisfied that substantial reasons why, in the interest of justice, the witness should attend to give oral evidence. Section 84 of the Act speaks of victim witnesses, and the test is, um, unless the magistrate is satisfied that there are special reasons why the alleged victim should, in the interest of justice, attend to give oral evidence. The only difference is that the magistrate does not have the ability or the power to discharge after hearing evidence from that person um, or that witness during those committal proceedings. It's important to note as well that an application for a 
witness to be examined can only be made after a charge certificate has been filed. Um, we imagine that it's most likely that these applications would come after a case conference uh, because at the case conference certain issues could be ventilated. It also may be the case that the case conference could be a good platform for both prosecution and defence to agree um, to a position to call certain witnesses because the prosecution may be in a position where they want to hear evidence from a person because ultimately they are the ones that will decide the fate of the charge because in the old scheme or the current scheme that after the magistrate discharges someone there's always the power for the prosecution to ex officio the charge which will remain under these current reforms so the prosecution has the ultimate say and um, the ability to call those witnesses and for the prosecution to hear from them at an early stage may in fact convince them whether to <coughs> firmly proceed with the charge or it may convince them to, to not proceed. And we would also imagine circumstances where they'd, after the witness is called, there could be grounds for a further case conference to discuss looking at resolving matters. Under the new reforms, what happens in circumstances where fitness is an issue and becomes apparent early in the proceedings. Is there any difference in the current scheme to the new proposed, well, sorry, to the new legislation? Well, in the new legislation at section 93, it, it essentially deals with this very issue. And the magistrate may commit an accused person for trial for an offence if the question of the person's unfitness to be tried for the offences raised by the accused person, the prosecutor or the magistrate, and if the question is raised by the accused person or prosecutor, the magistrate is satisfied that it has been raised in good faith. So essentially at that point, um, if it is raised at the local court, and most of the time that would be by the defence, then the magistrate would merely just commit the matter for trial. Uh, there is a provision, however, that under section 93.3 that the magistrate may require a psychiatric or other report relating to the accused person to essentially give the court some evidence that they are suffering from that very condition. And um, the once the matter progresses up to the higher court, there is still, because We'll get to the sentencing discounts a bit later on, but once you cross the line from the local court to the higher courts, if you tr typically enter a plea of guilty once you're in the higher court, you will not get the full 25% discount. There is a provision for mentally, for people where there is an issue of fitness, if they enter the plea of guilty in the higher court, as long as they, at the point when they become fit, as long as they enter the plea as soon as practicable, then they will still be entitled to the full 25%, even if this, and this will occur at the higher court. All right, so we've been through the process, we've been served with the brief, we've had our charge or charges certified, we've had the case conference and possible committal hearing, and we're ready to commit either for sentence or trial. How long do you anticipate, after the first mention, will we be in this position? Well, I think that does depend on the variances of the case and how many case conferences you conduct and whether you do go through the 82, 84 part and cross-examine witnesses. 
Um, I think the take-home message is that we don't expect it to be too different to what occurs currently under the current processes. In fact, if anything, it may even take a little bit longer for some matters to leave the local court. But that's not necessarily a concern if what you get is better charges, better charge certainty, better prosecutors, and ultimately better outcomes. Because at the moment, a lot of the delay is actually, once the matter is committed for trial, um, not that much occurs in terms of trying to negotiate it. So if it is the case that it stays in the local court about the same length of time or slightly longer, but results in, um, I guess, better outcomes for our clients, that's the main thing for us. We will know more, of course, when the practice note is released. Um, that is one of the, the unknowns that will affect the way the timeframes are managed. What are the discounts on sentence that will be afforded to an accused for a plea or pleas of guilty at the various stages under the new legislation? I'm glad you asked that, Mel. In relation to sentencing, if it's a plea of guilty in the local court, it's a discount of 25%. If it's a plea of guilty in the district court, a sentencing discount of 10%. And a plea of guilty that is made more than 14 days before the first day of trial, you get a discount of 5%. Um, it is the case, obviously, that there are a couple of exceptions to that, not many. Um, there are obviously exceptions related to where a client's fitness is an issue. And if you make a plea, say, at the 25, a plea offer at the 25% stage, that does lock you in if that offer is later accepted, or if an offer is accepted to a reasonably equivalent offence. We understand that in relation to drug court matters, um, a plea of a sentencing discount applies to an accused who indicates an intention to plead guilty prior to referral to the drug court and who ultimately enters a plea of guilty at the drug court. What effect does this new legislation have with respect to children's court matters? Well, the effect of these amendments is that the new committal processes only apply to serious children's indictable offences. Um, but the current committal processes that we all know will still apply to all of the other offences that are not dealt with summarily in the children's court. Um, the mandatory sentencing discounts, um, it's clear from section 25 capital A of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act as it's amended, um, that the sentencing discounts for guilty pleas um, do not apply to children um, if they were under 18 at the time the offence was committed but under 21 at the time they charged before the court. So the vast majority of children or the matters that are currently dealt with by the Children's Court should not attract the mandatory sentencing discounts. What happens if we start receiving substandard briefs from the police? That's obviously something that we've taken some time to think about and it is the case that we'll be monitoring very closely the standard of the briefs that we receive. Um, this reform is not designed to in any way lessen the rigour by which the police undertake their task. And certainly it is the case that we know that the better the quality of brief, the more likely it is that the matter is going to be able to be resolved quickly, efficiently and fairly. And fairness is of course an obvious part of this for legal aid. We are very keen to ensure that the reform is fair and that um, our clients are receiving quality legal advice based on the brief of evidence. And it may be that if the brief quality is very poor, um, we know that people may decide not to plead guilty on the basis that the evidence is really not there or not clear. Um, so we will continue to do what we can to hold the police to account, but also we encourage our staff, certainly, that if they notice examples of where the brief quality has really slipped, that they bring that to our attention and we will have mechanisms in place to continue to monitor that um, with the um, key performance indicators that we've set up to ascertain how well the reform is working. And what training will uh, you be offering your team 
uh, to legal aid staff? So we have um, big plans for a rollout of training statewide um, that will take place between February and April next year. Um, and that will cover the early guilty plea reforms, the parole and sentencing reforms, as well as high-risk offender reforms statewide. And we're anticipating to train all legal aid staff, as well as ALS staff and private practitioners who want to come along to our training, um, a lot of which undertake our work. And um, it's very important that everyone is across everything that's training. So training is coming to a location near you. Great. Well, thank you, Rob Hoyles and Daniel Covington, for being a part of this podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks.